Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase. I'm one of the founders of CoolMomPicks.com. Today, we are going to talk about the emotional lives of teenagers with Dr. Lisa Damore, whose newest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, is out right now. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. First, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Lisa Damore. You've seen her on Instagram, most likely. You have definitely heard her on Spawn. We even included one of her previous books in our book club. But if you're not familiar... Let me tell you a little bit about her and why she's on the show today. Recognized as a thought leader by the American Psychological Association, Lisa Damore, PhD, co-hosts the Ask Lisa podcast, writes about adolescence for the New York Times, appears as a regular contributor to CBS News, works in collaboration with UNICEF, and still has time to maintain a clinical practice. She is the author of three, three New York Times bestsellers, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents, which we'll be talking about today, Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood and Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. She and her husband have two daughters, and they live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. So, Dr. Lisa Damore, welcome to Spawn. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to have you back. I had to add that because we have spoken before. And I have to say, a few weeks ago, my boyfriend sent me an interview that you did, and he was like, you have to watch this. This psychologist is amazing. And I'm like, ha ha, going to be talking to her in a couple weeks. (laughs) Anyway, let's get right to it. I want to know the why behind this book. Why now? Why this book? Tell us a little bit more about that. You know, there were two big things. One, of course, was the pandemic. You know, I've cared for teenagers for nearly 30 years, and we've never seen anything like it in terms of its impact on teenagers. The other was that the cultural conversation about mental health has gone to a place that does not line up with how we think about it as psychologists. What I mean by that is that so often when people talk about mental health or when the discourse occurs in the public spaces, being mentally healthy is equated with feeling good or calm or relaxed. And we know that that's not what it is. I mean, those are lovely things. But as psychologists, what we know is that being mentally healthy is about having feelings that fit the moment and then managing those feelings well. And the book really aims to bring across that more accurate understanding. And it was certainly inspired by the pandemic. You know, I I touch on the pandemic, but really it's a book that's much broader and just about how we think about what emotional health is and how we support it in our kids and teenagers. Well, you bring up one misconception, right, about what it means to be mentally healthy. And I want to talk a little bit more about specifically some of the more common misconceptions when it comes to teens and their emotions. Is there one in particular that has been perpetuated or that really stands out to you or stood out to you as you were researching and writing this book? You know, there's one that I think has been operating under the surface and it's important to name. And I talked about it in the opening chapter, which is about myths about emotion. I think parents worry that painful emotions, especially very, very painful emotions, might actually harm their kids. We never quite say it that way, but I think, you know, when your kid's in a lot of pain, and teenagers, of course, experience very intense emotions, we have such a strong reaction as parents, and I do myself, I have two teenagers, of just wanting to make it stop, you know, not wanting to watch them suffer in that way. And I think especially with this circulating idea that mental health is about being happy or relaxed or feeling good, 
I think that there's a real fear that arises when teenagers are in a lot of pain. And what I lay out in the book is that negative emotions almost never harm anybody, Mm -hmm. the exception being trauma, like some overwhelmingly horrendous event that really rewires the nervous system. Most of the time, even quite intensely painful emotions are growth-giving. They blend a maturation. They've got information. They help orient us to the world. They're appropriate to what's happening, right? If, you know, somebody who you really like dumps you, of course you're supposed to be heartbroken. And so I make at various places in the book this argument for us being less frightened of pain and emotional distress in our teenagers. Is that something that our parents did to us? You know, like I'm Gen X, I have four teenagers or almost, I have three teens and a tween. And I find it so often in people, particularly in, you know, we're in our 40s and I'm not trying to point fingers at boomers or, you know, actual boomers, not the slang boomers, (laughs) uh, (laughs) to be clear. But this is so pervasive. I look at myself and know, particularly with my oldest, right? I think it got easier for me as I went along, but not everyone has four kids. You know, some people have no kids, but some people have just one. And this idea of watching the pain, right? And when they're little, we want to hold them and support them and do what we can. But that doesn't translate very well as our teens get older and sort of are forging their own path. So how do we as parents understand what you just said, that rarely will it be bad for them? Will there be major issues? Because so much of what I've learned about parenting teens is it's about us, Mm -hmm. right? It's about how we react or don't react. So what do you tell parents in those situations when their first instinct which isn't a bad one, it is, is to like dive in and help them. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So what I would say is first to offer reassurance, you know, that your kid in all likelihood is just really upset and that's just part of being human. And then I would say to point our attention elsewhere. And what I mean is away from the fact that the kid is in distress, because of course they will be sometimes, and over to the question of how is the young person managing the feeling? This is really the second part of, you know, defining mental health. So the first part is about having feelings that fit the circumstance. And then the second part is handling those feelings in a way that brings relief and does no harm. So if your kid got dumped and is heartbroken, you know, what we want to see is that they maybe are weeping because crying actually brings emotional relief. It calms the central nervous system. We want to see them maybe wanting to talk about how sad they are. We want to see them comforting themselves, maybe cuddling with the dog or eating their favorite ice cream. We want to see them finding ways to take their mind off of it for a little bit just to get a break from it. That is the picture of health. This is exactly what we're looking for. What we don't want to see is what we call, you know, maladaptive coping. I call it costly coping, which is where the kid is really heartbroken. And so they're like, I'm going to smoke a ton of weed Mm. until this feeling goes Mm. away. Or if I'm miserable, the whole house is going to be miserable till I feel better, you know, or I'm going to take this out on myself. So what I would say to the parent who is doing the excruciating thing of watching their kid feel something painful is the pain, the distress is part of life. How are they managing it and how can you support them in managing it adaptively? Oh, that's so helpful. And and that really leads to my next question, which is that for people with multiple kids in a household, I know you have two, I have four, you know, parenting one child and especially one teenager is so different from one to another. My son, who is really more willing to work through issues, but it's really best done via text message, actually, Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to in person. And I have another child who wants to hash it out 
in person, I would never even think about texting her. And so I'm wondering, how do parents navigate these recommendations and these findings that you're offering in the book and then allow for the different ways that kids are? Because I'm sure you can relate, right? In parenting, it's like you feel like you've got it. You're like, I figured it out. (laughs) And then you go to your next child and you're like, I am starting from scratch. (laughs) How did this happen? I felt like for one second, I felt like I was the expert. And now I feel like I'm a beginner. How do you talk to parents in navigating what we know about teens, but then adapting it to each of their children who are vastly different? No, it's so true. I love the way you describe it. Well, what I'll say is in my book, chapters four and five, I call them each a playbook. Four is a playbook for helping kids express emotion. Five is a playbook for helping kids tame or quiet their emotions. And those two together are the strategies or the broad categories of emotion regulation. And in each chapter, I offer a whole bunch of options because different kids are going to use different strategies for expression and different strategies for taming. Mm. But you also, you got at something so critical around the kid who will text and the kid who will want to talk and not text. And I think this is sort of a universal, which is that teenagers, to the degree they want to engage us around their feelings, often want to do so on their terms. And it's because they are driven towards autonomy. That is the nature of being an adolescent. And so it's really common, and I talk about this in the book, where, you know, at dinner, we're like, how was school? And they're like, fine. And we're like, what happened? And they're like, nothing. (laughs) And you're like, okay, I tried. (laughs) And then later at night, they're suddenly super chatty, right? We're trying to go to bed or something. And it's really made me appreciate that when we're the ones who are starting the conversation and asking questions, it's like we're calling the meeting and we're setting the agenda. But if they can wait, as they do, if they will, you know, till we're getting in bed or they want to do it by text and they initiate the conversation on their terms, on their timing, that's when they're most likely to open up. And I think we need to be aware of that and appreciate that it's really a solution to the wish to both be autonomous and to connect with us simultaneously. I love that. I mean, I do feel as though our teens are giving us their own playbook, right? They do, if we're willing to listen and observe. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think about my 14-year-old who will oftentimes text me from school and I say crisis, but it's more of like, mom, and I hate those texts, by the way, mom, and then there's nothing else. And that could be like, I lost my water bottle or, you know, I'm having an issue with a teacher. So we've talked about, can we not just do the mom text? But the other thing is, you know, she'll often say, I'm just having a really hard time et cetera, et cetera. And at the beginning, I was like, oh no, what's happening? I need to call the school. I need to pick you up. Even sometimes she'll say, you need to come get me. And I found that when I just take a beat, hear what she has to say, wait and see if she's handled the situation, nine times out of 10, she has. She's gone to the guidance counselor. She's talked to her teacher. And so in a way, she's giving me her own playbook. But if I wasn't willing to sit and listen and watch how these situations play out and know that this is how she is, this is how she communicates, I would be on my toes driving to the school half the time. So I think to your point, it's we need to see how our kids are, meet them where they are. And when we have those opportunities, capitalize on them. You know, in that vein, how can parents become more involved in the emotional lives of their teenagers? And of course, I speak specifically toward a more supportive and positive way because so many times kids don't want to talk to us. They don't want to share those things with us. They'd rather go to their friends or maybe even online or wherever they go. They don't want to engage with us. So how can we as parents tell them and show them that we're here, that we're supportive? We want to talk about those things. Well, part of it is just by being around. You know, I think a lot of times kids will want to talk 
when they're in the mood, right? And if we're available, you know, we can get lucky. I also think we need to not always assume that supporting our kids around their emotions involves getting them to tell us how they're feeling. We have this entire other category, which is just helping them to tame their emotions, helping them bring emotions down to size. And teenagers do a lot of things on their own to do this. They comfort themselves. They find, you know, happy distractions. They gain perspective. They solve problems. And we can help with that too. I think that what's so hard as a parent is sometimes your kid comes home and they're upset and they're not in the mood to talk and we can feel like there's nothing for us to do. And what I would say is actually there's an entire universe of things to do about just helping them feel better without even knowing what the issue is, that we actually don't need them to tell us all the time. And there may be reasons why they don't feel like telling us, but that doesn't mean that we can't say, you know, like, you want to go for a walk outside or do you want me to come watch, you know, Grey's Anatomy with you or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever they're watching in the moment. That's helping our kids with their emotions too. And supporting adaptive emotion regulation It's just not the talking stuff. That's so fascinating because I think so many parents, including myself at times, there's something wrong. We need to talk about it. You know, we need to solve it. We need to figure this out. And what I'm hearing is that the figuring out is often just our presence, right? Giving them the space, showing them that we're here if they need them. You know, I often talk about how I will just say to my kids, you know, do you want my help or do you just need to vent or you just need me to like sit in your room and fold your clothes? (laughs) That's my (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No, that's huge. And, you know, talking's great if the kid wants to do it and if it's helping them feel better. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. it also can be that a kid is talking and talking to a parent or caregiver and the more they talk, the worse they feel Mm. because that happens too. And, And we call that rumination in psychology. And when rumination sets in, when kids are spinning their emotional wheels, it's actually important to not keep talking. You know, to say, all right, you're thinking and thinking about this. The more you talk about it, the worse you feel. Let's take a break. Let's come back to this tomorrow. In the meantime, you know, should we go make your favorite dinner? You know, we really want to see helping kids express emotions and helping kids tame emotions as two different strategies of equal value when it comes to emotion regulation. Are there things that you, I don't want to say catchphrases because that sort of diminishes the power of what they are, right? Maybe they're mantras. I don't know how you would describe them. But for example, I have a lot of people in my own personal therapy work, you know, I've heard like feelings will pass, right? Like let the feelings move through you or you think of them as a balloon and letting go of the balloon. I've also heard like feelings are real, but they're not necessarily reality. Like some Mm. some of those, whatever we want to call them, are there phrases or mantras like that when it comes to emotions that parents might utilize with their teens? Yeah, I think a lot of times what teens value more than anything else when they tell us how upset they are is actually just straight up empathy. Mm. So I will say as a parent myself and also in my clinical practice, I say, oh man, that stinks. Like I say that a lot. Mm -hmm. And that is often as much as kids are looking for. They're often glad to hear it. Or I'll say, you know, I'm so sorry that happened. Mm -hmm. I also think, especially with teenagers whose emotions can be so potent that they can worry there's something wrong with them, validating the feeling and also reassuring them that the feeling is appropriate and logical and makes sense can be quite reassuring to them. Mm -hmm. So I'll say like, oh my gosh, anyone in your shoes would be upset. Or of course you're having this reaction. It would be really strange if you weren't. So things like that, which seem kind of like throwaways or nothings, often are everything 
something that a teenager is looking for. I agree wholeheartedly because I think even just personally, where I had a situation where I was feeling fraught, I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision. And a friend of mine who also happens to be a therapist, so it helps. She said, you know, I think anyone who would be in your position would have felt that way. And and it was like a weight was lifted off It's like me. magic. It right? is and you're like, like magic. That's all this needs. And I think yes. for kids especially, it's really valuable. So I would say start with empathy, validation, mm. you know, before you even turn to questions of problem solving or advice giving, mm-hmm. empathy and validation usually get it done. So I just want to talk a little bit about the new Surgeon General's warnings about social media, right? They just came out. There's a whole big thing. And he's saying, you know, my kids will not use social media until they're making a joke 72, but that's not, you know, <laughs> later later in their teenage lives. So can you talk very frankly, which you always do, just about the effects of social media on the emotional lives of teens? Like what do parents need to know? What should parents be looking for? Well, let's just start with the question of the when, right? And the Surgeon General's advice to delay, Mm -hmm. which I agree with, because it's very different for 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds to be on social media versus older kids. And so one thing I would just say, especially for your listeners who may have younger kids, is put it off. And then when the time comes where your kid is saying, I cannot be connected to my peers without a phone, which that can happen. That does happen eventually. See if texting alone will get them pretty far. Mm -hmm. I have a 12-year-old who has an iPhone Mm -hmm. that has no browser, Mm -hmm. no social media apps. It is a texting, calling, picture-taking, music-playing, video-making machine. Mm -hmm. That is all it Mm -hmm. does. And I have said to her, you're going to have texting alone until you need something else to stay meaningfully connected to your peer group and you'll tell me when that time comes and then we'll consider it. Mm. But I think that so often we hand over a phone fully loaded and don't take it as a very, very gradual process because the point here is social media can be hard on kids, but social isolation is too. So we really want to find that inflection point where they have the minimal technology they need and are really ready to use it to stay meaningfully connected to their peers. We want to think in that way. Then what the report does that I think is so critical is that it focuses our attention on the two things that I do want parents to worry about. And you know from my work, I'm not big on scaring parents, but there are two things I want them to tune into here. One is the content, like what are kids looking at on social media? Mm -hmm. And the thing that's tricky about social media is that it's got everything, right? It's got cat videos and goofy dance videos, and it's got totally unfiltered and disgusting misogyny and racism and promotion of eating disordered behavior and you know, just Mm -hmm. horrible stuff. Mm -hmm. So what's critical is that kids can be and are exposed to incredibly dangerous content Mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. And that's something that needs to be addressed and limited. And we need to be talking with kids about what they're seeing, where they're going and keeping an eye on that. Separate from that, there's the issue of what we call problematic use, which is when using technology of any form is undermining the activities that are essential for healthy development. So that's sleep, that's physical exercise activity, it's in-person time with people, it's helping out around the house, you know, those things that we know are critical to healthy growth no technology should get in the way of that. And I will tell you one rule. I have said this for years and years and years, and I feel like people looked at me like I had three heads and I feel like I'm finally having my moment. Nobody should have technology in their bedrooms Mm. and ideally ever, but certainly not at night. And if parents are trying to figure out where to even start or where to try to walk this back with an older teenager, I would say start there. 
get it out of the bedroom, explain to them that it undermines their sleep even while they are sleeping. We do not sleep as well when there's technology in our bedrooms and take it out of your room too. And when your teenager bristles, say, look, if I take it out of our room and don't take it out of your room, it's like we've gotten in the car, we've put on our seatbelt, but we haven't put on yours. Like we're not doing that. And if they say, it's my alarm, it's my music player, and you feel like you've got the resources and interest, you can say, here's an Alexa. <laughs> exactly. Happy birthday. Right? Yes, yes. And yes. that's fine with me. But that's an incredible place to start if parents are feeling overwhelmed. That's remarkably helpful. And I'm thinking right now about my own phone habits, and I'm definitely going to make some changes after listening to you speak. So last question, you know, you've been working with teens for a very long time. You've been writing books about them. What was the most surprising thing maybe you learned or discovered or shared, right, in the book that would help inform parents or help them to make better choices with their families? I think for me, the great revelation in writing this book was was to have so much more appreciation for all of the really, really healthy nonverbal ways mm. that kids express emotion. You know, when attention is so tracked on, they're talking to us that I think we miss a lot of other things. And writing this book really helped me to appreciate you know, that teenagers do a lot of things that are really good for them that give them emotional relief. Like most of them have playlists. They have a sad playlist, an angry playlist, a happy playlist. And when they are feeling those emotions, they will often catalyze the expression of those emotions by putting on music that matches that emotion and really getting into it. And so that's healthy expression of negative emotions that brings relief, but does not involve talking. Kids also use their bodies. You know, I had one mom say to me, you know, my son comes home from school and he plays basketball for an hour to blow off steam and then he can go do his homework. I'm like, there it is, right? The frustration of the day is all discharged on the basketball court. That's incredible. They make things, they make music, they make art, they bang on the piano, they bang on drums. And I had not, I think, really appreciated how powerful and valuable those strategies are for kids. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for all of your insights. Your newest book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents is out now wherever you get your books. And folks can also find you on Instagram. You're lisa.demore, D-A-M-O-U-R, on Twitter, L-D-A-M-O-U-R, and your website is drlisademore.com. Now, Lisa, you've been on the show before. You know that at the end, we like to share a cool pick of the week. Cool pick of the week. And it's, you know, I don't know, a TV show you're enjoying, a book you're reading, an app you're loving. So, you know, just curious beyond your own book. Well, I know, yeah, you're not walking around reading your own book, but <laughs> is there something that you're enjoying right now that you could share with our audience? I know they're always curious to hear yeah. what our guests are loving. You know, I'm reading The Night Circus right now by Aaron Morgenstern, Ooh. and I'm only halfway through. And I'm already sad that it's going to end. It's a great, fun, interesting read. Well, it's funny, you're recommending a book and I'm actually recommending a book, Different Direction though, nonfiction. So I've been doing my own body image work, transitioning to perimenopause has been a little tough for me. And I've been working with a dietitian and an intuitive eating coach. And the book that she recommended to me is called Anti-Diet. It's by Christy Harrison. I'm an audiobook fan, so I've been listening to it. And I have to say, it's been super eye-opening for my own work in learning about where all of this came from, where did dieting come Come from in clothes sizes and all of those things. But also as a parent of four teens, it has been truly enlightening. So now our listeners are going to get two awesome book recommendations. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Spawned. Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Lisa Damore. Definitely make sure you grab that book and that you're following her on Instagram. And of course, big thanks to our amazing engineer, John Bowen. If you've got a moment, there are a few things that you can do to help other parents like you find Spawned. You can leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. We greatly appreciate you doing that. You can just click the button, but if you leave a tiny review again that actually moves us up into that algorithm the magical algorithm so other people can find us you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and you know if you're headed out of town you may not be around your wi-fi you want to be able to listen to spawn wherever you are make sure you download your episodes and just a note when we feature authors maybe you've read the book maybe you're going to read the book a big way to say thank you for their amazing work is to leave them a review on amazon you can leave it on Target. You can leave it on Barnes & Noble too. But if you head over to Amazon and leave them their five-star review and just a few sentences about why you enjoyed the book, it really helps their work get seen by more people. Now, don't forget, we do have a few communities on Facebook. Our Spawned podcast community, we've got Recipe Rescue and Out Tech Your Kids. We chat about everything, show topics and parenting things that you want to talk about. We're here for it. Please join us there and make sure you're following us on social media. Thank you so much for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. Have a great day. Bye.